Well, if you're new here, welcome to uh, the next series, or sorry, the next sermon in our series in the Psalms. We've been traveling through the Psalms, and uh, as Aaron threatened or promised, depending on your perspective, we're going to be walking through the Psalms in the summers, uh, in the summers only for the next 12 years, one chapter at a time, and, uh, and then during the school year, once that gets kicked off again, we'll uh, transition to other books. We are in the second last personal lament in a section of personal laments that has spanned chapters three through seven. So we're in chapter six today. By the way, if you're having trouble finding Psalms and you're new to the Bible, just put your Bible on your lap, let it divide in the middle, and you'll be roughly there. Psalms is roughly in the middle. So Psalm 6 is our text today. There's been an alternating pattern as well in the Psalms so far. I don't know if you've noticed it. Maybe some of you have. The morning Psalms have been Psalms 3 and 5. Flip back a page from Psalm 6. Look at Psalm 3 verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. When was this Psalm written? After he woke again, for the Lord had sustained him. It's a morning psalm. Look at Psalm 5, verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Another morning psalm. And yet every other psalm is also an evening psalm. So looking at 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Fitting evening psalm. Verse 8 in chapter 4 reaffirms this. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a nighttime psalm. And now here in chapter 6, we read in verse 6, I'm weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. It's a nighttime cry. And so an alternating pattern kind of binds these royal Davidic uh, petitions together, gives us a little bit of variety, maybe, in even our use of the Psalms. But they also escalate from a prayer before lying down to sleep in chapter 4, which was the, the first nighttime Psalm. I will lay quietly on my bed. And notice, we read it just now, what he's doing in chapter 6. This night, what is he up to? flooding his bed with his tears to the point where his couch dissolves. <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. It's, there's an escalation. He's appealing all night long. It's petition after petition. So this is where the personal laments are heading. They're alternating and they're building as we head to chapter 7 next week. And this text in particular, you might say, wow, personal laments week after week. I don't know if I can take another Sunday. Um, <laughs> and maybe you feel that way. Maybe you've been encouraged. Um, but this particular psalm has a play on the word turn. It comes up twice, and we'll examine that later. But what we'll find is that this text calls us to turn to the Lord in our trials, that he may turn towards us in his grace, lest we be turned away as enemies of the king. That's where we're headed. And so let's read the text together. Psalm 6, 1 through 10, and then we'll, we'll pray. It should be on screen there momentarily. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my mourning, my moaning, rather. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. 
Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So Lord, we ask for your your presence here with us, just as you promised, that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there. And I ask, Lord, that you be the teacher and and the preacher uh, to our hearts today. Um, Do so through your word uh, as I preach it. And Lord, I pray that you would um, that you would show yourself to us as one who is utterly merciful, utterly trustworthy, um, worthy of turning to, and worthy of all that we are and have. And I pray, Lord, that you'd bring comfort to those who are mourning this morning. And I, I pray that you would bring challenge and rebuke and conviction to those who are your foes. Uh, or even to us, Lord, when we act like we're your foes. Lord, I, I pray that you would use your word to do all this and more uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about that superscript. First of all, that superscript in your English Bible has no verse. It's written above your text. In Hebrew, it, it does have a verse, even though the verse numbers came way later and are uninspired, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but if you're ever reading in Hebrew, your verse one in your English Bible is verse two. Uh, in Hebrew and so forth. It's a, it's a part of the inspired text, this, this superscript. And it says to the choir master for the flutes. Oh, sorry, to, for, with stringed instruments, I was in chapter five for a moment there. Uh, with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith. And you might say, what's that? Well, many Christians have wondered that. And so here are some of their guesses. Um, the neginot is the stringed instrument. The sheminith, um, the options are this. Uh, shemone means eight in Hebrew. And so it's a related word. It's, it's the eight thing. So it's a, upon the eighth. And you might say the eighth what? The eighth note, like a, as a rhythm. Or maybe it's an octave, an octave lower, right? Which would be great for a morning song. Uh, a song of weeping. Drop it down, sing it in a low bass baritone voice. A um, couple of problems with this. The eighth note, we're just kind of reading into something, whatever we want. The octave is also a problem because many, many cultures don't have an eight note scale. And we're pretty sure the Hebrews didn't. So they have weird other scales. If, you're, if you've ever listened to Bollywood music, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, no. It's like, whoa, where did those notes come from? That's not an eight-note scale, and that's probably closer to what the Hebrew scale would have been. So maybe not the octave. Maybe it had to do with the eighth day. And this was a really popular interpretation in church history, that in our spiritual reading of the text, we say, what is the spiritual meaning of the word eight? And we find that it's the day of circumcision in the Old Covenant and the first day of the week in the new, the day of resurrection. Resurrection, circumcision, new birth. We get really excited. But alas, we find that in the end, the text just says, upon the eighth. And normally, these superscriptions have to do with musical instructions, not some great theological uh, hidden meaning. Gregory of Nyssa uh, noted that the word Yahweh comes up eight times in the text. And so he just kind of goes off on, on that. And it's very spiritually helpful reading, but probably not what's intended here in the text. Um, it could also be an eight-stringed instrument. But again, we already heard that it was a stringed instrument. Why now do we need to specify that it's eight? We're not sure. And so Charles Spurgeon actually has a really great, helpful little commentary on this. You might ask the question, if there's a word here that, that even Hebrew scholars and, and Christians throughout the millennia can't seem to understand, then what is it doing in my Bible, right? I thought the whole word of God was helpful and inspired and profitable for teaching and correction and training and righteousness, all these great things. What is this unknown word doing in my Bible? And Spurgeon says this. He, he by the way, sides with the octave, very uh, European of him. Um, he says it's probably the octave. Some think it refers to the bass or tenor key, which would certainly be well adapted to this mournful ode. But we can just toss Spurgeon's words there aside because he says probably. So he's not preaching that as the word of God. He says this, but we are not able to understand these musical terms. 
And even the term Selah in other Psalms still remains untranslated. This, however, should be no difficulty in our way. We probably lose but very little by our ignorance. And it may serve to confirm our faith. And here's what he means. It's a proof of the high antiquity of these Psalms that they contain words, the meaning of which is lost even to the best scholars of the Hebrew language. Surely these are but incidental. And then he says accidental. I might almost say if I did not believe them to be designed by God. Proofs of their being what they profess to be the ancient writings of King David of olden times. And how you know Spurgeon wrote this is he just said olden times, which is older language. And so this language in the psalm is older yet and proof of their authenticity. And I think Spurgeon is right. We lose nothing by not knowing what upon the eighth means. And so I won't be attempting to sing it upon the eighth this morning for you. The first section of the psalm is verses 1 through 5. It's a, it's a petition. It's actually petition after petition. Um, in many ways, the message of this psalm is the same that we have been hearing since Psalm 3. David has enemies. He cries out to the Lord. He is confident that, that the Lord will save his anointed king as promised. And yet there are some similarities and differences. So let's read the first five verses again. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Notice how many petitions there are. Almost every line seems to start with what we would call an imperative or a plea. Telling God what you want. So for example, rebuke me not, discipline me not, be gracious to me, heal me, turn, deliver, save. That's, those are his petitions. And, and while the first few songs here, Psalms three through five, generally assume David's innocence, at least there's no mention of his sin as a reason for his suffering. Psalm six maybe hints at his guilt. For example, in, verses, uh, in verse 1, rather, when he says, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then he ends that section in verse 3 by saying, O Lord, how long? There's an implied message here, and that is, Lord, stop disciplining me. How long will you continue to discipline me? He's not just saying, don't do it in general. He's saying, I'm under it right now, and I need some relief. And where would David get this idea that God would discipline him as a king? Well, it's from 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 15. This is the Davidic covenant. And it reads this way. He, that is David's son, shall build a house for my name. The Lord speaking. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So his throne is totally secure. But listen to verse 14. I will be to him a father he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Same Hebrew word, with the rod of men. So David is using the word that's at the center of the, uh, the Davidic covenant to say, Lord, how long will you, are you going to discipline me or rebuke me? If you have the ESV verse one, uh, the word rebuke is actually the word that's found in the Davidic covenant. It says, I will discipline him or rebuke him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So here David has a promise from God, not only about his sons, but presumably also about himself, that his throne, not just Solomon's throne, but David's throne will be forever that the Lord will not rip the kingdom away from David, even when his foes come against him. He's to interpret it as discipline paired with God's loving kindness in his life. And so there is maybe a hint here that David has done something wrong and speculation abounds. Is this because of his sin with Bathsheba or some other sin? Maybe the census, the text doesn't say. All we know is that he's under the discipline of the Lord. 
some interpreters in the past have looked at the intense weeping. Look at verse 6 and 7. Stuff, a flood of tears. He says, my eye even just is just done because I've been crying so much. My eyes hurt. <laughs> the life has gone out of them. There's just so many tears that have dissolved even my couch. Um, and we look at that and go, okay, well then, maybe this has to do with that time in David's life when his little baby son, born um, by Bathsheba, was sick and dying. This would be the time of, of intense mourning in David's life. Again, it's just speculation. Others would say, well, this has to do with Absalom's rebellion because of, for example, verse 7, he says, my eye grows weak because of all my foes. And yet again, the text doesn't tell us that it's Absalom. All we know is that David is grieved intensely and has enemies coming at him. And so the universal language of the psalm, the fact that it's not dropped into a particular historical moment, helps us to access it and use it as our own language as well when we're grieving. Verse 2 David asks for the intervention of God on the basis of, note what it says there, be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing or I'm frail, I'm weak. So he asks for God's mercy in this, in this intense season of grieving. He asks for God's mercy, not because he's strong, but because exactly because he's weak. And so neediness and dependence on God, not strength or merit, is what qualifies you to receive the grace here of God. And David confesses this. He confesses his need. And that's a great way to start when you're grieving, just to lay it out before the Lord and say, I need your graciousness because I, I am weak. Um, and he says, the second line there, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. It's a strange saying, isn't it? A, a more uh, awkward but literal translation from the Hebrew um, actually personifies the bones, gives them like a voice. My bones are horrified, is the word. So what does that mean? My bones are, have you ever had horrified bones? What is he talking about here? And while this might feel like a rabbit trail, I do want to do a deep dive on this with you for a moment. And even though it might feel like a rabbit trail, I, We'll come back to Psalm 6, and it will be really helpful for us in the end. And it'll also, I hope, be, help us become better readers of the Psalms in general. Um, before we take a deep dive on verse 2 and these bones, I'd like to talk just a moment about something called parallelism. It is a mark of Hebrew poetry, whereas in English, we tend to use rhyme or meter. How do you recognize what's a poem and what's a story in English? Rhyme and meter. So for example, I didn't write these, by the way. I got these off the, the trusty interwebs. I wish I wrote them. Uh, here's a limerick for you. Back in the garden, before man took a bite, before any knowledge of wrong or of right, all branching from one, we basked in the sun, but now we're condemned to the darkness of night. It's a good bedtime poem for your children. <laughs> or not. Or this one, a haiku, which has five syllables in the first line, seven in the second, and five in the third. Let's see if you can guess which text this comes from. It's in the Bible. Man of unclean lips, touched by God's refining fire. Here I am, send me. Isaiah 6, I heard it, somebody said it, very good. All right, so this is how we recognize poems in English and then in Japanese, I suppose. Um, but in Hebrew, you recognize it through something called parallelism. And what is that? Two or three lines which go together. They, sh they have a relationship in some specific ways. So this is about to get technical, but I promise it's useful. There's three, three different broad categories of parallelism that we like to talk about. Synonymous parallelism is super common. You know the word synonym, things that mean the same thing, um, where the same meaning is expressed in different but equivalent terms. We could picture it as two sides of the same coin. So you use different words to say the same thing twice. An example is Psalm 112.1. Listen to this. Line one, 
Happy is the man who fears the Lord. Line two. Who is greatly devoted to his commandments. So what is the fear of the Lord in this psalm? Being greatly devoted to the Lord's commandments. It's, it's two ways of saying the same thing. The fear of the Lord, being devoted to his word. That's the same thing, in, at least in this, this verse. So the, the danger here is that we, as Westerners, that we try to divide line one and line two as if they're saying something different, right? We try to split it and go, oh, so there's two things that are good, fearing the Lord and, right? And what does it say? Being devoted to his commandments, two separate things. It's a great two-point sermon outline, misses the point. The point is that this is, these are two ways of looking at the same thing, the same blessed man whose fear of the Lord is demonstrated in his reverence for God's word. So that's synonymous parallelism. Antithetical, antithetical means opposite. Often you'll see the word but in your English Bible. But, and you see it in Proverbs and Psalms all the time. An example would be Proverbs 10, verse 1. A wise son makes glad his father. But a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Isn't that interesting? Is he saying that dads are generally happy and moms are generally sad? No. Why is he changing from mother to father? Because it's a feature of the poetry. You flip whatever's in the first line and, f- and make the opposite on the second line. The son stays the same because we're talking about the same dude. But in the first line, we had a wise son, and the second a foolish. Then gladness turns to grief. And even the father flips and turns into a mother in the second line. Um, because we're, it's all about opposites. The third one is synthetic parallelism. Often you'll find the word for or because in the second line. For or because. So you say one thing and then you go beyond it. An example of this, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil shall be upon the earth. Do this because that. I'm not going to unpack that. We'll have to save that for a Ecclesiastes sermon. Uh, so three types, synonymous, sameness, antithetical, difference or opposites, and synthetic, one thing and then going further. And these are broad categories. You can really spend the rest of your life studying the nuances of Hebrew poetry. And if that gets you excited, I encourage you to do so. I like happy people. So let's take a closer look now at, at verse 2. What do we have going on here? It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Languishing means I am, I'm in a state of frailty or weakness. Line 2. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. What kind of parallelism is this, I ask? Synonymous. Thank you, seminary grad. (laughs) Yes, it is synonymous. He's saying the same thing in different words in line one and line two. So what do we see? What's being equated? Being gracious in line one, equated with healing in line two. The word me in line one stays the same. Me in line two. O Lord stays, O Lord, in line two. For or because stays the same in line one and line two. And then this is where it gets interesting. I am languishing, turns into my bones are horrified. And so we notice here that there are two pictures being joined into one. Grace for the weak and healing for those who have bone problems. That's two ways of saying the same thing. And what is that thing? That's being said. It's a request for restoration of life. Isn't it? It's not that David has osteoporosis, but that he's feeling weak to his core. 
He needs the strength that the Lord can graciously provide. And bones are just a way to describe this by using a metaphor of healing. We even say this in English, I am bone tired. You ever heard that? Bone tired. What does that mean? Your bones are tired. What is this, Star Wars, right? Bones are aching. Storms coming, Annie. No. No, it's... It's not that your bones are literally aching or whatever. It's just that you're tired right down to your very core. If you take a a lamb or a goat in the ancient world and you want to know what gives it its strength, how is it able to stand? So you kill it and you chop its thigh in half with your bone saw, right? What do you see? Well, you see all this mushy stuff and what's at the very core? Giving the strength, the rigidity, the bone. And that's the picture here. I need healing right down to my very core because my strength is gone. That's the one picture that's being presented by two very different metaphors. And, and so, yes, have we been very technical perhaps? But this is also really simple in a sense and helpful as you read the Psalms because one line will help you understand the other one. So, for example, let's look at bones in some other Psalms. Let's look at the bone Psalms. I think I coined that phrase, bone Psalms. Uh, Psalm 35, 9 through 10. Psalm 35, 9 through 10. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. What are the bones here? Why are the bones speaking, we might say? Well, it's because in verse 9 and verse 10, we have a relationship between the two lines here. We have the soul rejoicing in verse 9, and then we have bones saying in verse 10. And then we have the Lord mentioned in verse 9, and again in verse 10. And In verse 9, we just say, exalting in his salvation. But verse 10 provides the content. That is the exaltation that's intended in verse 9. And so if we could put an equal sign between bones and something else in this text, it's synonymous parallelism, right? As good Bible readers, we know that now. This is synonymous parallelism. Bones equals soul, which makes sense, the very core of my being. All right, let's look at another one. Just a few chapters later, chapter 38, verse 3. It says this, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Bones equals flesh. Sin equals the Lord's indignation. These things are... Equals is too strong a term, but they're similar enough. They're put in a relationship where, hey, sin and wrath go together like two peas in a pod. And by all my flesh, I mean even my very bones. It's a a composite picture. It's saying the same thing. All right, Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Isn't this fun? Psalm 102, verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. Hmm. That's interesting. Smoke and furnace, that's easy, right? Smoke and furnace, clearly synonymous parallelism there. But here, what do bones equal? My time on earth, my days, right? And, and they're passing away. What does that mean? Well, He feels like he's about to die, doesn't he? His days are being shortened. And when you die, do you have a whole lot of strength? Do do corpses have a whole lot of power to do things? No. So his his core self, his his spirit is passing away. His flesh is is left weak and powerless, even corrupt as as he dies. And it's all happening like smoke billowing from a furnace in the fire. So what he's saying is this. I feel like my life is rapidly and unstoppably draining out of me. He's not actually talking about his bones really at all. He doesn't have, again, osteoporosis or something. 
we have to interpret it in the parallel that he's given to us. And so I have a few more here, but in the interest of time, we'll keep moving. By the way, I'll, I'll put this on the recording for you. Uh, Psalm 109, 18, Proverbs 14, 30, Psalm 34, 19 to 20. And that last one we're going to zoom in on a little bit more. So Psalm 34, 19 to 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What kind of parallelism is that? See that word, but? Antithetical. Yes, I'm oppressed, but I will be delivered, right? It's an opposite. Two things in tension. Verse 20, he keeps, that is the Lord, keeps all his bones. Who is that? The righteous, right? The righteous person's bones. Not one of them is broken. So knowing what we know about bones in the Psalms, what does this mean? Well, not one bone is broken seems to pair pretty well with the Lord delivers him out of them all. Doesn't it? In verse 19, deliverance of your life when you have affliction, equals invincible bones, right? You can't be crushed in the end. You can't keep these righteous guys down because the Lord is going to deliver. He will preserve their bones. And this gets really interesting because turn to John 19, 36. John 19, 36. John is giving his eyewitness testimony here. And we notice in verse 32, the soldiers, John 19, 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they pierced him instead. And that, that brings us to verse 36. For these things took place. The scripture might be fulfilled, quote, and here's our text. Psalm 34, not one of his bones will be broken. All right? Literally, not one of his bones is broken, right? The psalm actually meant metaphorically, right? His life will be preserved. His strength will be preserved. And the psalm wasn't a prophecy, was it, about the Messiah? It didn't say, one day, Jesus of Nazareth or the Messiah, uh, it, this is going to happen to his literal bones. No, it was given as a metaphor for preservation of life and yet fulfilled in Christ quite literally. Would you agree? Quite literally. And, and this is fascinating. Is John ignorant that this is not intended to be a prophetic psalm? Is he confused about the metaphorical use of bones in the psalms? Not at all. Rather, his interpretive rule book has entries like this. All of the Bible is prophetic, pointing ultimately to Christ in one way or another. And that includes stories, poems, law, and predictive prophecy. The whole Bible is prophecy, and it gets you to Jesus. That's conviction number one. Number two, what is written metaphorically in the old can be fulfilled literally in the new. Or it can be the other way around. For example, in Psalm 69, all four Gospels say that Jesus fulfills the whole sour wine to drink or vinegar to drink text. You know, that text is actually in synonymous parallel. It says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus eats no poison food, but he literally drinks sour wine. But he fulfills the metaphor of the complete picture, and that is that those who ought to be his subjects, who ought to be worshiping him, have instead betrayed him, like a king whose food taster gives him poison food. And that was David's complaint in Psalm 69. Jesus fulfills all of it, the literal, the metaphorical, a little bit of both. He chooses one line, fulfills it literally, and then not the second one. And that's part of the New Testament writer's interpretive handbook, is that metaphor and literal are flexible. What matters is what the word is on the page. And Jesus can fulfill all of it however he likes, even if it's interesting and intriguing for us. Thirdly, Interpretive rule number three, 
the writers of the New Testament uh, thought that the inspired text on the page has more authority than what the original human author intended. And this one's contentious. What is written has more authority than what is intended by the psalmist. In Psalm 69, David wasn't trying to say the Messiah will fulfill half of this literally and half of this metaphorically. <laughs> it wasn't even a future prophecy. He was just complaining that his people were betraying him and crying out to the Lord. The intention of the human author is something we try to discover or reconstruct based on that inspired text on the page. And Christians have always grappled with this. How do we describe the way our understanding of, of Scripture changes once Christ comes to fulfill all that was written? We do have more clarity now. And for the apostles and writers of the New Testament, this seems to mean that they, they could say, as it is written, dot, 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 and then preach the literal fulfillment of a text which seems to be just metaphor about David. In fact, isn't it interesting that the metaphor initially seems to be the opposite of what happened to Christ. If the meaning of having no broken bones in Psalm 34 verse 20 is defined by verse 19, the Lord delivers the righteous out of every affliction, then why does Jesus cry out to God, not get delivered, and end up humiliated and killed by his enemies? It seems like the opposite is happening until the resurrection, right? When you find out, wow, death really couldn't crush him. He is Mr. Invincible Bones, if there ever was one conquers death, is not actually condemned and humiliated, but vindicated and elevated. Beautiful. Absolutely. Bang on with the psalm. But for three days, you'd have every reason to kind of wonder. It's like, yeah, I know they didn't break his bones. Is that foreshadowing of the resurrection? Or is that just like, <sighs> yeah, literally his bones weren't broken, but spiritually they were. Right? For three days, you might wonder. And then on the third day, you realize his bones are intact in every sense. It's foreshadowing of the resurrection. And this brings us back to Psalm 6. Rabbit trail complete. What does it mean for David to ask the Lord to bring health and healing to his bones? Well, for him, look at verse 2. Bones, we already said, uh, in between verse 2 and 3, he says, My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. His bones and his soul are being equated. And in verse 4, deliver my, my life. His bones, his soul, his very life. That's what he's asking for here. And what does he ask the Lord specifically for? He asks the Lord to turn. Notice that in verse 4? That's actually the word for repent. Because what repentance means is do a 180. So if you've been going this way, you turn around and you go the opposite way. Now, the Lord has nothing to repent over in terms of sin. Let's not get confused about that. What, the Lord, what, what David is asking the Lord to do is, Lord, you've been bringing discipline in my life. I ask that you turn and instead bring favor and healing. You've been making it hard for me. Turn and now give me a season of blessing. Deliver me from the oppression that you've brought into my life. Do a 180. And this is because David views God as currently bringing or allowing death to come upon him because of his enemies, right? Why ask the Lord to turn if the Lord was always just trying to bless you but couldn't? Instead, the Lord is actively engaged in bringing suffering in David's life. And now David says, Lord, would you turn and now bring healing? It's all in God's sovereign hands. And Finally, in this section, David appeals to God's own glory for the reason. He says basically this, and this is verse um, five. If I'm dead, I will not be able to praise and glorify you for delivering me in front of others. The wicked will think that they have victory over the righteous, even over God's anointed king, who has the, pre the, the, the promises given previously about victory and prosperity in verses, uh, sorry, Psalms one and two. So Lord, deliver for your own glory, not because of anything in me, that I might praise you. Because corpses don't sing. And then after this stream of petitions, we find our next section is one of lament in verses 6 and 7. Notice 
the repetition of the word I and my. So David is now no longer petitioning the Lord, asking, asking, asking. Instead, he's taking a break from asking for a moment to find a little bit of a lament oasis. He's just going to sit at the Lord's feet and tell him what's up, knowing he's heard and that the Lord is better than any comforter. He's going to take a break from asking for a moment. What does he say? Let's read it together. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The wording is really dramatic. In the first half of verse 6, he pictures himself creating a flood on his bed. The waters are rising uh, with tears. And then in the second half of verse 6, his couch, the, the word there um, is drenched in the ESV. It's a typically a word used for dissolving or melting. So can you imagine this man laying on his bed? The waters come up, dissolve the bed, and he's left where? Do you remember the song? It's a Natalie, uh, I don't even know her name here, Imbruglia song, if you're old like me. I'm all out of faith. This is how I feel. I'm cold and I'm shamed, lying weeping on the floor, right? That's how it goes, right? All right. Yeah, that's what, he's just laying on the floor, soaking wet. His bed is dissolved after flooding with tears, and that's it. And, and he just turns to the Lord and honestly says, this is where I'm at. This is my reality. I've asked you, and now I'm going to wait and just talk. And so this is another reminder for us. It's okay to be honest with God. But maybe this is also a reminder for those of you who have been asking, asking, asking for God's intervention in your life or the life of somebody you love to take a moment just to wait. Having asked all, having, having done all things, simply cry. And just be honest without trying to spur him to move. Maybe there's a time to just rest. Seems to be what David's doing here. Look, I've asked. Now I just want to let you know what's up and wait on you. God, I know you hear. I know you understand better than any comforter I could seek out there. So I'm going to lay soaking wet on a floor where there used to be a couch and just tell you how I'm doing. It's an invitation for you if that's where you're at right now. And then verse 8 one of the dramatic reversals in the Psalms, suddenly we have confidence and courage. It just comes out of left field, like a, like a steam train just boom, into our view. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Wow, that's boldness all of a sudden, hey? This guy who was in this heap on the floor um, now really has a spine, to continue the bone metaphor. Um, this is apparently the effect of his little oasis of lament, um, the effect it's had on him. It's a drastic change of tone, confidence, courage. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Do you hear the confidence there? He's no longer asking how long. He's saying the Lord heard. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayers. All the enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. By the way, that word greatly troubled is recycled uh, from the bones in verse 2. Now it's the enemies who are horrified. It's a beautiful thing. And so David knows this, the, the, that God will not ultimately allow the wicked and ungodly to continue in their hostility. Go just a couple psalms back, chapter 2, verse 5 and 10. 2, verse 5. Then he will speak to them, those are the enemies of David, in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. There's that word again. Look at verse 10. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So there's a warning and a threat here, a promise that God will not allow David's enemies to stand. And David knows this. The Lord has heard his cry. He accepts his petitions. And of course, I pointed out some of these already, but David has a little fun by recycling some wording from earlier in the psalm in his petitions. 
Remember when David said his bones were horrified in verse 2, verse 10, his enemies are very horrified. Secondly, David asked God to turn or do a 180 degree by stopping discipline and bringing healing instead. You remember that? He's now confident that God will do so. And so now his, he says his enemies will turn. Same word. Turn. Now my enemies are going to be the ones doing a 180 now they have the upper, upper hand, but soon they will be put to shame instead of David. God will turn back from his discipline of David, and all his enemies' plans will be turned back on their own heads. And this is where we come back to the meaning of David's bones. We saw in, in this psalm that, that if his bones are not healed, this is death itself. And we also saw that throughout the psalms, bones are used as a metaphor for the core of a person, their strength in life itself. So David ends the psalm confident that though he is currently as good as dead, God will restore his life and send his enemies packing. His bones will not be broken, in other words. So one commentator points out that what is true of David here is, is both exemplary and typological. Sorry for the long words. Exemplary, an example for us to follow. David's a pattern for believers who suffer, no doubt. We are invited to petition, to lament, to have our confidence in the Lord during times of intense suffering. And really, our, our confidence is in Christ because in him we've been promised trouble and suffering in this life. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation in John 16, 33. We're expected even to follow Christ by joining him in a death like his expecting confidently that we could also share in a resurrection like his. That's Romans 6 verse 5. So we follow him even into the, the bone-crushing machine of death, but confident that God will preserve us and bring us out the other side in a resurrection just like Christ. And so in this, we are being like David, and we can use Psalm 6 as a pattern for our own faithful weeping. And the sweet deal for us, actually, church, is that we have better promises than David upon which to stand, Hebrews 8, 6 tells us. And so we have every reason to be encouraged in our grieving. But secondly, it's typological, or that is, it's a pattern that points us to Christ. And we've already seen that David's confidence and experience through his many trials was that of unbroken bones, right? Speaking metaphorically of his deliverance from trouble and death and restoration of a confident and joyful state in his soul. We also noted in John 19 that, that Christ fulfilled this Davidic pattern, both literally and metaphorically on the cross and in his resurrection. Death and condemnation couldn't hold him. And, and this is in line with the intended metaphorical meaning of Psalm 6 and Psalm 34 and the other bone psalms. But David's confidence in Psalm 6 verse 8 leads us to another typological connection. This one, to be honest with you, surprised me. I thought I would be just preaching a message of consolation and faith today. And instead, I'm about to lay the smack down. Because Jesus turned to Psalm 6 um, to warn against religiosity. Psalm 6 verse 8 says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. We find this text in Jesus' mouth on Judgment Day in Matthew 7 verse 23, when people come and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then also in Luke 13, 22 to 27, we read, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, which of course is the place of his crucifixion. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It's a good question. Right? Are, is this kind of going to take in the whole world or maybe the whole nation of Israel, or is this difficult and, and few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. And then he even uses the word all, just like in Psalm 6, all you workers of evil. 
in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Praise God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So we see this psalm taken up by Jesus not to comfort his disciples in times of trials, but to warn those who think that they know the God of comfort, but really are wearing a disguise. They say, Lord, Lord, we submit to your King David, but they're false friends. They're actually traitors and they don't know the Lord and they don't submit to him. This is where it gets kind of serious. So yeah, David points us to Christ in that after Christ suffers, God shows he's heard his weeping in the garden and on the cross makes him the ruler, king, and judge of all. And that's sobering. It's not good enough in the coming day of judgment to simply have said the words, my Lord. Psalm ends on a pretty negative note for the enemies of David and the enemies of God. What happens if you're Jesus's foe when God hears his weeping and vindicates his life from the pit? He, he then turns to some and says, Depart from me, workers of evil. It's not good enough to simply say, my Lord, or have done a bunch of biblical things in the name of Jesus. Because on that day, actually, each one of us will meet our God and King in the person of Jesus Christ, who who suffered and died, yes, in our place. But who we will then behold as a mighty warrior judge, a victorious David, Mr. Invincible Bones, What will count on that day is that you actually really do know and trust him, that you've fully submitted to him as God's king, that have not been among those who are just false friends or rebels, those who say, Lord, Lord, we serve you, but we're really just workers of lawlessness and iniquity on the inside and wearing a convincing disguise of loyalty to the king on the outside. The message of this psalm, if that's you, is that your disguise will be turned back on your own head. You might be prosperous now, but the Lord will bring a 180 in your life towards judgment. What a horrifying prospect. And how would you know whether this is you or not? Well, here's a few ways. One, do you admit that you are a sinner and a rebel against the king in your heart? And someone who, like David confessed, is in need of God's grace and mercy? Or are you hardened? When you get a sense that sin is being pointed out or discovered in your life, you try to justify, minimize, deacon, dodge, cover it over, thinking you're succeeding, but God knows better. And and the very fact you're engaging in this kind of response shows you're not among the saints, but those who merely wear the disguise of righteousness. As 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Trails, we need to be a church where we're ready to confess and apologize to one another. It's crucial. It's not what gets us saved, but it's an indicator in our lives that we're not just saying, Lord, Lord. We're actually letting the Lord in. Another test, secondly, would be your your regular response to sin. When, When you do sin, do you try to hide it, move on? Or do you bring it to light through confession, fearlessly, confidently, so that you might be cleansed and experience true fellowship with God in the church. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thirdly, how do you normally respond when the Lord asks you to do something costly, especially in things that will go unnoticed by most? And, and this reveals the answer to the question in your life. Is he really your Lord? If he is, you'll say yes to him in faith, regardless of the cost, even regardless of the reward. Because everything that is not of faith is sin. So you see, we could go along as Christians, and very many do, checking off boxes of morality, don't we? Moral boxes regarding the standards of the Christian life, and yet not submitting really to the will of God for you. And so he might be your lawgiver in his word for your outward lifestyle, 
but not the trusted Lord of your heart. You might be moral on the outside, but hostile and faithless on the inside. And this is exactly who Jesus is talking to when he takes Psalm 6 in his mouth on Judgment Day. See, these people are religious, doing the works of God in the name of God, but are not born again. People who are born again have new hearts. And this is what's exciting. You might, you might be hearing this and go, oh no, I got to shape up. People who are born again are open and trusting with the Lord, will, not only willing to sacrifice their image, their comfort, even life itself for the sake of obeying the God they've come to know and love. But actually, consider the cost of confession and obedience for the sake of Christ as a privilege and a joy. I don't want you to hear this message and even the message that's on Jesus' lips here as a manipulation by the law to give you more rules that you need to be more religious, sacrificing more. That's not how God works. He doesn't manipulate you by the law. He motivates you by his love. So the indicator here in your life is not whether you do costly things for the Lord, but whether you're motivated and joyful to do all things for his glory. That's the sign of a born-again heart. And of course, it will result in beautiful obedience and even costly sacrifice. Showing the world that our, our precious Jesus is worthy of our wholehearted allegiance in everything, whether in dramatic big life-altering circumstances or the little mundane things of daily life. Apologizing to your kids, for example. And if you find yourself troubled by these assessments, maybe this week is a great time to, to reassess your relationship with the Lord. Way down inside, are, are you a worker of iniquity? It doesn't have to stay that way. It, lower the walls of your heart. Let your guard down. Let the Lord convince you of your sin. Let yourself stand condemned before him. Let him destroy any sense you have of your own worthiness, your own goodness, your lordship over your own life. And then remember that this same God is the one who bore the shame and crushing weight of your rebellion so that you don't have to feel that any longer. And he reconciled you to God by taking his wrath on the cross so you don't have to be turned back and put to shame as his enemy. And you get to be welcomed as a legitimate and true subject as you believe he's done this for you at the cross with him as your true king. You don't need to pretend your own righteousness. He, he declares you covered by his own righteousness. You no longer are in control of your life. He calls the shots. You say yes with joy. You also now have confidence like David, no matter what happens. You see, the worst thing would be to suffer as a religious but lost person, faking joy and confidence in the Lord, but not really knowing it. There's real joy and confidence when you do let your walls down, admit your sin, and say, my life belongs to you, and I'm so glad it does. Who better to hold my life in his hands? So that on judgment day, Jesus will not quote Psalm 6 to you and send you away into torment. But instead, you'll know his comfort. As Psalm 6, 8 says, God has heard the sound of Christ's weeping. He will accept his suffering as your vindication. And you instead will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so in the end, Trails, we're encouraged not only to petition, lament, and trust in God in times of suffering. We're moved to look beyond David to Christ, our king, whose weeping God has heard, whose bones were invincible, and who invites us to submit to his lordship by trusting, following him completely so that he might know us as a faithful subject and not as false friends or even foes when he sits on his judgment throne. What a day, amen, to look forward to for those of us who walk through all kinds of sin and suffering in this life, 
when God turns back the evildoers, he will turn to restore us wherever the curse has touched our lives. Talk about a 180. And so may the God who turns back be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of 180s. But I pray for those who are feeling conviction or condemnation right now, that they might not remain there, that they might see Christ, the one who did suffer and cry out and whose life was taken from him, as the one who can absorb all the shame and guilt that they are feeling, that the perfectness of his sacrifice would give them confidence to stand before you, knowing that all has been paid. I thank you for each one who's trusted in Christ in this way. I thank you for the, the fact that we do not suffer and, and sacrifice and obey and submit to our king out of obligation, out of a, out of a sense of ought, but out of joy and love that you've motivated our hearts with. And I pray that you do that this week. Lord, for those who are suffering with health concerns, with relational turmoil, um, with business or, or family tensions, Lord, with, with loved ones who they see are not walking with you, Lord, I pray that you'd be near to their hearts. Remind them that you, you too, in the person of your son, have, have known what it is to suffer and to triumph. Help us to trust you with all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.